the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. As we head into Hour 3, I was moderating an event with several Republican candidates for office this weekend, and one of the audience members approached me after the event and after some introductory remarks I had made, or at least with those introductory remarks in mind, and he said he really liked the show and my comments generally, but also pointed out with something detectably less than praise that I do things a bit differently. I asked how, and again, a bit less than complimentary, but only a bit. He said, well, you go, uh, you, you go so deep on things with authors many of us just don't know and words we have to continually look up. And I asked, like who and like what? And he said something like, well, you have this thing about Aristotle and a lot of other writers that don't really hit at what we're anxious about, like crime and the borders. And he said, and the rest of your vocabulary is just not usual, normal or average. I forget which word he used, but one of those. I thought a bit about that as I chuckled and said to him, I'd try to do better. What I thought was, let us not engage in the bigotry of low expectations and lowest common denominators. So here is how I intend to try better. A story from perhaps someone who is another author not everyone knows of anymore. I find this increasingly true, as I find it increasingly regrettable. His name, William F. Buckley, Jr. Before I go into his story, something from Abraham Lincoln. It was one of Lincoln's earlier speeches. It's from 1838, and he was lamenting what was then already a vanishing frame of reference as revolutionary soldiers were dying off and their testimony, of course, dying with them. He lamented, quote, the task of establishing and maintaining civil and religious liberty is a feeling that will fade. It must fade. It is fading, and it has faded with the circumstances that produced it. Close quote. The sweep of time erasing the sweep of memory. That was 1838. Now think about what that concern would have been in 1938 or what it will be in 2038. Now, before I go on, this is why we today have history wars, wars about teaching American history. Some want to teach it. Some want to condemn it. Some want to revise it. Some want to memory hole it. Some want to memory hole it so they can revise it, so they can condemn it, so that they can change it. You know the old Soviet joke, we know the future, it's the past we need to change, which is based on a non-joke from Karl Marx who said nearly that very thing, that the task of the philosopher is to change the past, not understand it, change it. So on to William Buckley. He He was known as not only the founder and leader of the modern American conservative movement, but among other things, a simply great writer and wordsmith. What he was accused of with words, one might just as well say about history or even political philosophy. Words, after all, language and thus reason being the very things we humans share that distinguishes us from other forms of life. Which is also worth noting as the nihilistic left among us also tries to change with not a little success 
our language. First our history, now our language. In any event, a little fun, but then something serious. Let me quote William Buckley from a piece of his some years ago. He writes, one, two people of the same approximate age and similar education won't have identical vocabularies. John will know the meaning of maybe 100 words that Jane doesn't know, but Jane will know an equivalent number of words that puzzle John when and if he runs into them. Two, the reader's attitude toward an unusual word often depends on the context in which it is used. Two stories hang on this point. Years ago, a classmate took me delicately to one side and said, Bill, National Review would have a much larger circulation if you would just forbid the use of so many arcane words. I told him it was his imagination that so much such that so many such words congested my magazine, and I made him a bet. Sight unseen, I said, here's $10 that says the next issue of Time magazine will have more words you judge unfamiliar than you can target in any back issue. You take your pick of National Review. Well, you can guess I would not be telling you this story if I had lost the bet. Question. Why was my friend under an, under an illusion that cost him 10 bucks? Explanation. If a sentence or paragraph of prose is analytical in nature, an unusual word springs out at you. But when the identical word appears in a passage in which the writer is describing something or telling a story, the eye leaps over a word otherwise arresting. Since National Review is a journal of opinion, most of its articles and features are, as one would expect, analytical and critical. An unusual word in a verbally demanding environment comes at you more aggressively. An example, quote, she was a ravishing beauty from the sunlit hair to the limpid eyes to the full lips, sparkling teeth and curious tectonic smile, close quote. What kind of smile? The reader doesn't know exactly and isn't going to ask, not unless whatever the writer goes on to say about the beautiful lady can't be understood without knowing exactly what it is that makes up a tectonic smile, whatever the hell that is. In that eye can discern the tectonic disruptions of an early geological age. The word tectonic means relating to, causing, or resulting from structural deformation of the Earth's crust. That word reaches out at you, and you see in its eyes the candid structure. Buddy, unless you know what a tectonic disruption is, you can't swing with me on this one. Go read something else, or if you want to, stick with me and see if you can follow what comes next. The context often establishes whether the unusual word can coast by without interrupting the reader's thought. In the case of the tectonic smile, it, of course, does. Three, the law of the advantage of flexing your muscles. The following episode is my all-time favorite. Again, I'm quoting from Bill Buckley, though I have, though I have never written it down before. Thirty-five years ago, my hosts took me, pre-lecture, to dinner at the large hotel in Garden City, New York. A waiter, a man of about 50, was visibly excited by my presence. At the end of the meal, he drew me to one side to disclose the reason. He belonged, it turned out, to a militant labor union to which he was required to pay dues. Every month, the union newsletter featured proudly the union's most recent political activities on behalf of his membership. They are terribly democratic, he complained, and I'm a Goldwater Republican, so when I saw you come in, I really cheered. I thanked him, and then he leaned over and whispered into my ear, quote, let me tell you something, Mr. Buckley. I subscribed to National Review just a month ago. Now, if you would do something about all those long words, you will, 
He stretched out his arms expansively, double, maybe triple your circulation, close quote. Do you agree with me, Mr. Buckley? The waiter persisted. Yes, sure, I reply. We'll certainly try to do something about those words. Flash forward, one year, same dining room, same waiter, different speech. He beams when I come in. Both his hands close on my right hand. You took my advice. It's made the magazine. Everyone can understand and read it now. I was carried away by the underlying meaning of it all and smiled back exultantly. I thanked him. It was very good advice you gave me, I said. The moral here is really liberating. The unused muscle begins to work out. In January, it hurts awfully, looking at all those unfamiliar words, like the first day of skiing or tennis. In February, the incidence of such unknown and offensive words is a little less, and you feel the relief. In March, it still happens, but only now and again. By June, yes, you feel no pain at all. It isn't necessarily that your vocabulary has increased at a geometric rate. It's that the words you use to think of as alien and intimidating are less and less that as they continue to crop up, and your mind and imagination are gradually including them in your own immediate visibility range. If you are assigned the job of sports writer, you gradually become comfortable with any number of words you simply could not have defined before. Exactly the same thing happens or has happened to the reader of the sports section or of the financial section. After a while, you feel quite at home. Four, it's fair to distinguish between different categories of unusual words. I like the late Dwight McDonald's nomenclature. Some words he wrote in a celebrated review of Webster's Third Dictionary belong in what he called the zoo section of the dictionary. That is, the words do exist, but the need for them is so remote, you can and should keep them caged up in the zoo until it is absolutely necessary to take one out, which may be never. I know a word that describes the feeling you have in the roof of your mouth when peanut butter sticks to it, but I will never use it. In flat fact, I decline to disclose it. On the other hand, it is important to remember that every word birthed in the dictionary is there because at some point one of three things happened. Either an objective thing or a concept or abstraction came on the scene which hadn't been described before and now just had to be given a name. Think cyberspace. Or an artistic hand closed in on what had been a void and the new word survives the infidelity of the season, earning its way into the dictionary, like see kindly. Or an authoritative writer simply uses the word, and such is the prestige that his mere enunciation of it validates its legitimacy, like tushery. Leading to my conclusion, five, which is that while one can be very firm in resisting people who spout zoo words, one should be respectful and patient with those who exercise lovingly the wonderful opportunities of the language. I went downtown some years ago to hear a black pianist about whom the word had trickled in that there was something really cool and ear-catching, besides which his name rolled about the tongue, releasing intrigue and wry amusement. And so I went to hear Theolonius Monk. He struck some really sure enough bizarre chords, but you know... It would never have occurred to me to walk over and say, Theolonius, I'm not familiar with that chord you just played, so cut it out, please. If I may tie a ribbon about the use of political philosophy here, words and everything else, 
Richard Nixon, as president, was once advised to bring in William Buckley to help him with White House communications and speechwriting. Nixon turned down the idea, saying, Buckley's a painter, whereas I need someone who can draw by numbers. Well, maybe Nixon needed a painter after all. But in defense of political philosophy, let us think about the times we are in and go back to Lincoln's concern and lament about the vanishing frame of reference, which would lead to a vanishing frame of reverence for this country. Remember what he said in his 1838 speech. Passion has helped us out, but can do so no more. It will, in future, be our enemy. Reason, cold, calculating, unimpassioned reason, must furnish all the materials for our future support and defense. His next line was the kicker. Quote, Let those materials, a study of history and reason, be molded into general intelligence, sound morality, and in particular, a reverence for the Constitution and laws. And let it be said that we improved to the last, that we remained free to the last, that we revered this place to the last, that during our founder's long sleep, we permitted no hostile foot to pass over or desecrate their restive place. Excuse me, their resting place. We allowed no hostile foot to pass over or desecrate their resting place. Close quote. George Orwell put it that we have reached such an age that the first task of the intelligent has become to restate the obvious. I don't know how intelligent I am, but it seems to me we certainly need to restate our basics and the basis for them. A lot has been memory hold. A lot has been distorted. A lot has been revised. And a lot thus has been transformed here. So, yes, if all good with you, we'll continue to restate and reteach that which informed the teaching of those who bequeathed us this miracle of a country, a miracle Marxists have had in their sights for too long, a miracle which is fading. It's the miracle at Philadelphia. It's worth throwing everything we have at saving it, including restating the thinking and learning and knowledge of those that, with their level best, gave us that miracle. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, portions of which are brought to you by my good friends at Y-Refi. If you're looking for a really remarkable investment opportunity, what they're offering is a fixed no-load interest rate up to 10.25% return for investors, all in a secure and collateralized portfolio. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm, as I say, run by really good people. They are investors who do really well by doing good for others. You can be a part of that. Just check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, R-E-F-Y dot com. Or give them a call at 855-316-3087. That's 855-316-3087. My friend, uh, a friend of mine, um, talks to me a little bit here and there about political philosophy and some of what we were talking about in the previous segment. And he said he saw a TED Talk by a guy named Michael Schur. I didn't know who Michael Schur was on the importance of uh, learning philosophy and ethics. And um, I listened to it, and the conclusion was really great. Now, I want to share it with you. Michael Schur, he's a writer. You may know him or of him or of his works. 
Uh, he was a writer for the comedy show The Office. Do you know of him, Bill? Do you know who this guy is? You do? I did not. He was a co-creator of Parks and Rec. What did you know him for? One of those kinds of things? Anyway, he gave a TED Talk. I liked his conclusion. I think it's right on spot. Let's go to it. But you will, I guarantee it, at some point become embroiled in a complicated, confusing, ugly, gut-wrenching moral dilemma. That is just a fact of life on Earth. There will be a dilemma in which there is no clear rule to follow. There is only a kind of vague investigation, and everything you do seems like it might be wrong. So how do you prepare for that? By reading theories of ethics and understanding what they say, what they mean, how they purport to help us make better decisions and become better people. And by the way, just reading these theories is no guarantee that you will actually make the right choice when you're inside one of these complicated and tangled ethical dilemmas. You can take all the practice half-court shots you want at the YMCA, but when you set foot on the floor of the NBA arena and there are 15,000 screaming fans, you're probably still going to throw up an air ball, right? But if you've prepared, you will increase your odds of success. You will increase the chances that you sink the shot or that you at least get the ball close enough to the rim that you don't embarrass yourself and become a meme. (laughs) Understanding ethical theories is how we increase our chances of success at simply being human beings who have to negotiate with other human beings. And to me, there is nothing more important than that. Thank you. I thought that was pretty good. Uh, And if you want to watch his TED Talk on YouTube or whatever your video player that you prefer might be, again, his name is Michael Schur, S-C-H-U-R, and he tells a long story about why he was led uh, to read Ethics about a little dilemma he himself uh, found himself in. Now, there's another part of this which complicates things, and it's a theory I've been turning over in my head recently. And it's kind of hard to talk about. Um, It's hard to talk about without giving offense. Uh, And it's hard to talk about without offending exactly the kind of person and exactly the person you don't want to offend, which could be a family member, a friend, a co-religionist, something like that. Let me do my best to unravel that and talk about that when we come back. And we will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, portions of which are brought to you by the good people at Balance of Nature, good people who make a great product. They're good people because uh, they are involved in not only the manufacturing of a good product, but helping endow shows like this so that we can converse, but also helping to endow certain projects on uh, helping children and families learn American history. And nothing could be more important than that. But their product is what I take every single day. Balance of Nature's Fruits and Veggies, a blend of 16 whole fruits and 15 whole vegetables in one serving, one daily dose. Just take it once a day and you are boosting your immunity, you are boosting your health, you are boosting your energy with pure, potent plant power. 100% natural from the capsule to the ingredients. Best product I've ever taken. You can get it to us at uh, balanceofnature.com. I was going to give the phone number out to our show balanceofnature.com make sure to use discount code balance now here's 
the slightly uncomfortable and tricky thing that's been turning over in my head lately. I've been turning over in my head lately in relationship to everything I just said in the previous two segments, my monologue and then the follow-up and Michael Schur talking about why studying ethics or morality or really what we might just say classical political philosophy is important. And he says, you know, it gives you a guide and gives society a guide on how to do things. And he's right about that. But the key phrase is the society part. It depends on other people observing those strictures, lessons, and views of morality as well. It supposes, it presupposes that we're all on the same page. It presupposes that we all share the same, not only virtues, but right conclusions, right reason, right thinking about those virtues. So let me try it this way. And you may find yourself in this. Uh, I don't know if this is one of these times where I'm pulling a Prager or a Corolla where I'm just thinking out loud. It's a dangerous thing to do. But let me try it because this has been on my mind lately. Maybe you can relate to this. As many of you know, I am fascinated by uh, how children learn. I am fascinated by not only cognition, but lessons they adopt, um, whether it's from examining the works of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood or Sesame Street or all the work I've done with Bill Bennett over the years, including his books and children's books and history teaching and all of this. I am consumed and fascinated by, don't have a degree in it, took some independent studies on it, but it's not my area of expertise, but I am consumed with how children learn. Not only facts, but yes, also values. And most of us understood, and we have known this, whether we read it in Plato's Republic or not, but we have known this forever, that most of us believe that children learn values and virtues through a few different um vehicles. One of them is, of course, hopefully and ideally the best vehicle, which is parents and family members. You know, if you can have a good intact family or at least a dedicated parent who's willing to teach the child values, history and everything else, there's nothing better than that. That is, of course, the parent is any child's first best an all-but-indispensable teacher. Uh, That's obviously true, and that's one of the reasons why so many of us are so animatedly angry about the new education theory that wants the parents out of the classroom, that wants the parents' positions out of the school board meetings, that wants the parents' input out of the curriculum business. This This is part of what's so disturbing to us, because what we all also know is that while every parent is a teacher, not every teacher is a parent. Now, let's go back to the first part. Every parent is a teacher. Doesn't mean every parent is a good teacher. A good parent is a good teacher. A serious parent is a serious teacher. Now, not every child is blessed with that. Thus, we rely on what James Madison calls auxiliary precautions. Auxiliary precautions. What we can use either to aid and help, aid and assist that which the parent is trying to communicate and instantiate with the child, or that which can help raise a child in the absence where the parent is not able to do it 
or is not very good at it, or maybe doesn't even speak the language that the child speaks. I mean, there's any number of reasons why the parent may have difficulty imparting values and lessons to a child. It can include parents who are great and dedicated to trying to do that, and it can include absent absence of parents who just aren't there, and it can include bad parents. So let me talk about the dilemma I've been dealing with on this when we come right back. I'm Seth Liebson, and we will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. That's the theme song from Charlie's Angels. I was talking to a friend of mine, a couple uh, the other day, they're they're uh, in my age group, and they said they were going back and watching uh, uh, reruns of uh, Three's Company. I said, really? Come on. I mean, there's a lot better than Three's Company if you want to go for 70s nostalgia. I mean, start with the Rockford Files, for God's sakes, uh, which they were un- – I mean, they knew of it, but they were unfamiliar with it. I said, yeah, Three's Company is kind of the the cheap Charlie's Angels. And, I, and they said, no, it's not. It's totally different. It's not the same thing at all. I said, no, it really is because Suzanne Summers, God bless her, I think she's actually probably a pretty good woman. I've heard her interviewed a few times. But in those days, Susan's, Suzanne Summers was kind of the, the not the Farrah Fawcett. <laughs> you know, at the same time that they were coming up together, she was kind of the, the not the Farrah Fawcett. You know what I mean, right? Without getting into it. Anyway, Charlie's Angels. Uh, Rockford Files, and it got me into a whole thing on private investigator st- series, which isn't totally unrelated to my point, actually. It's not totally unrelated to my larger point that I've been kicking around this hour, which is how children learn and the value of knowing ethics and political philosophy. So here's the tricky thing about it all, is if you missed any part of the preceding uh, thoughts, uh, preceding uh, what led up to where I'm going, you'll want to hear it because it, it might only make sense if you missed what I said. Go to 960thepatriot.com and catch up on it uh, if you want the full complement of the point. If there is uh, one that makes sense to you, it's this. The value of learning ethics, virtues, political philosophy, history, the value of teaching children the good stuff, uh, teaching them values. We, we, we use fairy tales. Again, this is as old as Plato, but really, you know, throughout the history of Western civilization and most civilizations that I know of, they teach children tales. Some of them are fiction, some of them are nonfiction, and some of them are blended. So George Washington's cherry tree is kind of a blended story. Uh, what you you get from Hansel and Gretel, of course, is non, not not true at all. And then, of course, there are tales and stories from history um, that do impart lessons that are true. And you know, you teach children these things for a reason, and children learn and adopt and absorb them for a reason. It's to be better people and to get along in the society in which they live according to the rules of the road, according to what's expected of them as they mature, according to the manners and mores of acceptable behavior as you get older. Isn't that what this is all about in the first place? And I did that, of course, as a young kid. Most of you in the audience probably had that experience as a young kid. And thus, we actually know 
of classics of children's literature. How many of you have had the experience? God, you won't find it anymore. This is a crime against humanity. You go to a bookstore now and go into the children's section and you see what crap they've got there. It's a crime against humanity. But up until about five or ten years ago, Bill, you tell me if I'm wrong. Didn't you enjoy, if you went into a bookstore in the children's section, seeing occasionally some of the same books you had as a kid? Did you see it? And I don't know off the top of my head what they might have been. Maybe it was Harold and the Purple Crayon. Uh, Purple Crayon. Maybe it was uh, Rupert the Rhinoceros. Maybe it was a Dr. Seuss book. Uh, you know, maybe it was The Hungry Caterpillar. Uh, maybe it was Make Way for Ducklings, uh, I, uh, Where the Wild Things Are. On and on I can go. I, I just did the list so you could kind of maybe remember one of those and identify with what I'm saying. Bill, am I speaking Greek? You know what I'm talking about, right? And it made you feel kind of good because what that made you sense was these were kind of the durables. Oh, yeah, I read that. I'm glad to see it's still popular. I'm glad to see people are still reading that. I'm glad to see children are still reading that. All of this works if and only if two things occur. One is if we are brought up with the same lessons and the same literature and the same stories, or at least, yes, the same conclusions from those stories. All right. You don't all have to read the same book to get the same lesson. You don't all have to read, I don't know, The Snitches or The Sneetches by Dr. Seuss. Can you still even read that anymore? You don't have to read The Sneetches by Dr. Seuss to get the message that you might also get from, I don't know, To Kill a Mockingbird when you get older or some other book that teaches that children are all equally human beings irrespective of race. You can get it from that Dr. Seuss book. You can get it from that. The point being this. This is the second thing that must abide for this to work. And what's this? Civilization. The perpetuation of our institutions, Western Civ, it works only if the vast majority, and I don't mean the slim majority, I mean the bulk, the preponderance, the vast preponderance of children not only are raised with those stories, raised with those values, raised by absorbing those teachings and absorbing them, knowing that the rest of the world thinks, or the rest of your world, was raised on them too, thinks that way too, plays by those same rules as well. If you wonder sometimes what happened to people, what happened to civilization, what happened to manners, which is something we think about a lot now and are forced to because, you know, society has changed. It's in large part due to a fallacy I grew up with and didn't know, which is this. Reading all those books, very blessed to have them, obviously, and privileged to have them. Um, I kind of, without even thinking about it, just accepted and assumed, that's the better word, that everyone else was reading these things and abiding by these things and wanting to play by these rules as well. You know, what was the Fulgham book, Everything I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten? And he has a long list of things that children learn that kind of apply to adult life. And it's kitschy, but it makes its own sense in a way. You know, clean, after, uh, clean up after yourself. Leave the place better than you found it. All of that works only if everyone else also plays by those rules. Also, if it, it only works if everyone's on the same sheet of music. That's the only way you can have a coherent orchestra. It's the only way you can have a coherent civilization. And I hate to say this. I hate to. 
but it's eminently true. It's something F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote in The Great Gatsby. I'm, I, I, I'll get it almost exactly right, if not exactly right. But he said the fundamental decencies were unequally distributed at birth. The fundamental decencies were unequally distributed at birth. Let me pick up on that and close with the thought about that when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, and thanks for uh, letting us into your hearts and heads and ears this afternoon. really appreciate it. Let me conclude my thought on what I've been talking about this hour. I didn't intend to really do this, but it's been on my mind, and thanks for allowing me to kind of let it unroll with you as well. Feel free to write me or call. I guess we're out of time for today. Call tomorrow if you have other thoughts on this. But I was quoting The Great Gatsby, um, F. Scott Fitzgerald and The Great Gatsby, and, and I think pretty closely to almost exactly right, where he says the fundamental decencies were parceled out unequally at birth. And of course that's true. I mean, all of us are born in different circumstances and all of us are taught differently. But that's the point of great literature and really uh, Michael Schur's point at the end of the day, too, about learning ethics. He calls them ethics. I would call it classical Greek philosophy or classical political philosophy. It's so that we all can be on the same page. Edmund Burke said, manners are more important than laws. Laws might touch you here and there, but manners are basically in our air. They are, quote, what vex or soothe, corrupt or purify, exalt or debase, barbarize or refine us by a constant, steady, uniform, insensible operation like that of the air we breathe. And this was Plato's concern in the Republic. Remember, yes, he did have the allegory about teaching children stories. He wasn't the first. Maybe he was the first in Western philosophy. But this carried through all the way through the 70s and 80s as well when you look at the great writers about children's literature and the importance of fairy tales. It was so we could be on the same page. And if you want to see a breakdown of society, there's a word for that. It's anarchy. You can see it in politics, of course. You can see it in political movements, of course. But you know where it starts? It starts at the individual to individual level. It starts at the personal level. It starts in the culture. It starts with manners, which is why I hopefully, with your help, continue to labor thinking it matters that we teach Western political philosophy and teach that which those who created this country learned. God bless you all. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth Liebson and class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.